Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Dr. Nicholas Carderis, a leading psychologist and addiction expert, including in his current roles as the CEO and Chief Clinical Officer of Maui Recovery in Hawaii and Omega Recovery in Austin, Texas. He's also the author of the fascinating new book, Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book and its key arguments regarding the perverse relationship between the rise of social media and the decline of our mental health. Dr. Carderis, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. Pleasure to be here. Before we get into the role of digital technology and social media, I want to start with the idea that we're facing a mental health crisis, because one often hears that, but it's not always defined or described in terms of its scale. What's the nature of the crisis, and what's its magnitude? Yeah, I think that's a great question. If we were to look at the mental health metrics or the psychiatric metrics, um, they were at their all-time worst before COVID. In 2019, if you were to look at some of the, the psych, and, and some of the numbers I'm going to quote are U.S.-specific. So in the United States, depression was at an all-time record high, uh, anxiety rates, suicides at top 42,000, overdoses were at over 70,000, um, ADHD. By every conceivable metric, we were at the worst juncture in our uh, mental health that we'd ever been. And then COVID came and COVID acted as an amplifier where all these metrics then got even exacerbated. And you know, just globally speaking, depression as a sort of a main driver or main metric uh, depression right now is the number one debilitating chronic illness in the world, according to the World Health Organization. So by every conceivable way that we have to measure mental health, we're on fire. And and it's been getting worse, and it's been getting worse over the last few years. And COVID was only kerosene to an already burning fire. So we're not doing well mentally. Let me just uh, pick up on that particular point. How much, in your view, is the rise of mental health issues a function of growing mental health problems in our society versus a decline in stigma and a greater propensity towards diagnosis. In other words, Dr. Carderis, is our mental health worse than in the past or are we just more prepared to acknowledge it today? Yeah, I think, and that's always, you know, one of the counter arguments is, you know, we're diagnosing it more. There's more sensitization to certain issues. I definitely think we're in worse shape than we've been before because of certain environmental and societal factors, because there's clear research that connects our immersion in technology, our love affair with technology, and with some of those adverse mental health impacts. There's clear research that shows the more tech you use, the more screen time, the more depressed you're going to be. 
Um, and, and depression really is sort of the, the, the granddaddy of a lot of these other mental health byproducts. And, and one of the narratives that I really like to embrace, there's a, a researcher, there's a neuropsych, a depression researcher, Dr. Stephen Alardi out of the University of Kansas. And he's studied depression for the last 20 years globally. And, and one of the clues that we get from his research that, that to me says that there's a relationship between technology and depression is that in his studies of global depression, he found, interestingly enough, that the most the least depressed people, the most mentally well people, were the least technologically advanced. So indigenous peoples tended to have really, really healthy mental health rates. And in fact, when they spent 10 years studying the Kaluli in Papua New Guinea and other indigenous tribes in South America and in Africa, these folks who had extremely challenging lives, these these were not people that were sitting in hammocks eating peeled grapes every day, um, were really mentally healthy. In fact, in uh, Papua New Guinea, they were they studied over 2,000 New Guineans for 10 years, and there was not one case of clinical depression. And 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 so his he derived from his research that there was something called therapeutic lifestyle changes that it was that depression was a lifestyle byproduct. And if you look at it, and you know, as a psychologist, we know that one of the best treatments for moderate depression is physical activity and socialization. You know, depression and a lot of mental illness thrives in isolation and it thrives when the person's sedentary because when you're physically active, you increase your serotonin levels. And when you're socially connected, we know that we're a social species genetically hardwired for connection, face-to-face connection, not the counterfeit digital connection. So Dr. Alardi's research showed that if you layer in just those two things, well, he had a couple of other things in his protocols. Um, but the two main drivers were uh, becoming more socially connected and more physically active. And so when you look at what the digital age has done, it's been a nuclear bomb on face-to-face interpersonal connection and physical activity. We're couch potatoes, we're sedentary, and we're isolated, and we're screen staring. So that, that that's a big driver of depression on a very fundamental level. You come to your addiction expertise through the problem of substance abuse. What's the addictive nature of, of social media? How does it compare to, say, street drugs in terms of its effect on people? Yeah, so, you know, one of the main drivers of any kind of addiction is the what we call the dopaminergic effect or the dopamine reward loop. So anything that tickles our dopamine receptors tends to have the potential for us to get habituated to it. Um, and there's been some really interesting research. You know, Dr. Cope back in uh, 1998 looked at how much things like Food, sex, video games, cocaine raise our dopamine levels, and and they tended to correspond with the mo the more dopamine elevating something was, the more potentially habituating it is. So we know that things that are hyper arousing and stimulating, and things that have that give us little dopamine tickles like likes and shares and all the little candy that we get when we, um, you know, when we're wading into the the digital water, um, those are things that kind of really Tickle that response. Now, the, the the difference with let's call it historical marketing or or things that may have been made to engage us in the past is is that the big tech has used some of the most sophisticated behavior modification techniques to really curate experiences for each individual that are targeted. You know, social media is I call it a a heat seeking missile that targets uh, many of our vulnerabilities because we know that our vulnerabilities 
our emotional reactivity is what drives our engagement. It's like rubbernecking a car accident. You know, we shouldn't be looking, but we can't stop looking at it because it arouses our lizard brain. And social media folks know how to arouse our lizard brain. So you've just unpacked three different factors um, that explain the relationship between digital technology and social media and the rising mental health crisis, the addictive nature and through targeted content, the breakdown of real life social connection, and then the extent to which it's associated with a decline in physical activity. Are those the ways in which digital technology and social media are influencing the mental health crisis? Or are there other ways in which this perverse relationship manifests itself? Yeah, there is more. There are more layers to the onion and there's more complexity to it than that. I think that's kind of the 30,000 foot view. And and then in the playbook, let's call it the big tech playbook, you just identified sort of step one and two. Step one is habituation. And step two is once you're habituated now, you're more vulnerable for other types of um, influences, shaping influences, behavior modification, uh, psychiatric illness. Um, I, I kind of analogize, it's almost like a boxing metaphor. I don't know if you're a boxing fan, but you know, the old thing used to be you weaken somebody up with body blows. And, and once you've weakened them up with body blows, you go in for the knockout punch. And so uh, in the book, Digital Madness, I use the language of we, we all have a psychological immune system. And our psychological immune system has been compromised by our love affair with technology and specifically social media. Social media has now weakened us in a variety of ways, psychologically weakened our immune system. So now we're much more vulnerable for everything from um, ideological extremism to psychiatric types of disorders. So it's not just the we weren't meant to be sedentary and alone and so I'm depressed. Now it's because I'm depressed and feel empty and meaningless in my life, I'm much more vulnerable for a lot of manipulation and, and shaping influences that I wouldn't normally be vulnerable to. On that point, this book and your previous one, Glow Kids, emphasize the negative impact of digital technologies on kids. One thing that struck me in the new book is the corrosive effects of trying to match up to so-called influencers. Do you want to talk a bit about the consequences for self-esteem, self-worth, and ultimately mental health, and in particular, the negative ideas and messages perpetuated to young girls? Yeah, so that's that's really that was sort of the evolution from my last book, Glow Kids. You know, that really built a foundation then. Because even six years ago, to me, it was shocking that people, it was a news flash that technology could be habit-forming, when now we know you know, the curtain's been pulled back by by their own admission, if you watch The Social Dilemma or any other other documentaries, some of the defectors from the tech world have said, look, this is addiction by design. You know, it was for monetization, and very clearly we did this on purpose. What I think were some of the unanticipated consequences of this was the, this mental health uh, effect. And so when you have um, social media that's algorithm-driven and predictive algorithms, that are essentially looking to see what people's proclivities are. It has an amplification effect and what we call an extremification loop. So if I'm interested in right-wing uh, political ideology, the algorithm is going gonna, is gonna to amplify or give me sort of steroided, <laughs> juiced-up content regarding that. If I'm a vulnerable teenage girl who's really concerned or vulnerable about my appearance or my weight, and and I'm going to start rubbernecking some content related to that. The problem is, if I'm a psychologically vulnerable teenager, 
and I rubberneck that content, it makes me more unwell. It, it, it increases my propensity to be um, to have any kind of an eating disorder, anorexia, bulimia. The, the, the part that I think is really shameful is it would have been one thing if some of the people behind big tech and social media didn't know about this, right? If, if, if they were just good old American capitalism, they're just increasing monetization. You know, we've done that ever since, you know, McDonald's, Happy Meals and, you know, jingles and, and all sorts of marketing tactics. But the, the, the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Hogan, who released internal emails and, you know, great expose by the Wall Street Journal and she was on 60 Minutes and testified in front of Congress. They had their own internal research that showed Instagram increased suicidality amongst teenage girls. It increased uh, eating disorders by 17%. And, and there was dialogue internally, should we tweak the algorithm to make it less toxic and less vulnerability-seeking? And the response was full steam ahead. You know, to to change the algorithm will be to reduce engagement. So th- I think there's a more there's more culpability there now when you have knowledge of the damage that you're doing. It's one thing if you're selling cigarettes and you don't know that they're a carcinogen, but if you knew that they were a carcinogen and you're still uh, marketing Joe Camel to kids, then the pox on you. Now now you're knowingly harming people, and I think that's what's come out over the last couple of years that um, it's harmful. And and you know, really the the bottom line with a lot of this is. The I think social media, I mean, I've really come to view it as almost like a living organism. It feeds off of our most lizard brain vitriolic emotion. That's what animates it. And then we feed the beast, and then the beast in turn feeds us back this amplified vitriol. And because that's what that's what that's what works. And so when we speak about influencers, um the coin of the realm in social media is uh, emotional content. It, it, it's the most over-the-top behavior. So if you're going to be a thoughtful person that wants to have discourse about any particular topic, you're going to have two followers. But if you're an over-the-top, and in, in, in the psychiatric world now, we've, we're seeing a whole sub-genre of psychiatrically ill influencers who are really performative, who are very, in, in their own way, entertaining, and who are now having hundreds of millions of views. So here we're talking about influencers with Tourette's disorder, with dissociative identity disorder, with borderline personality disorder, who are having hundreds of millions of followers. And now we're seeing the social contagion effect where their followers are beginning to consciously or unconsciously manifest symptoms of their influencers' behavior. So this goes beyond Kylie Jenner and her vapid, shallow materialism, which you know, it's a toxin onto itself, right? It's shaping the values of so many of our young people want to be YouTubers and they want to just be famous because their values are being shaped by by their influencers. But now we're actually seeing psychiatric illness being mimicked online in, in true social contagion form. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You mentioned earlier, Nicholas, that the book outlines the difference between 
online connections versus real life social connections. Uh, most listeners would probably instinctively think that the light latter are healthier than the former, but they may not fully appreciate why or by how much. Do you want to talk a bit about the limits of online relationships and the importance of real life social connection? Yeah. But- Again, we're hardwired social animals because, again, evolutionarily, the tribe survived. And so we we were not the fastest or the strongest, questionably the smartest species in, in, the, in the high desert, in the, in the Sahara. And so what kept us alive as a species was our ability to connect and to, to stay tribal or to stay as a group. There was strength in numbers. And so that got baked into our psychological DNA. And they've done research going all the way back in the 1950s and Dr. Hebb looked at isolation experiments and boy, we do not do well when we're alone. We go insane, we get mentally unwell, we get physically ill when we're in isolation. We're not meant to be isolated. But I think it's, it, digital- it's, it's, it's sort of interrupt, Dr. It's why, for instance, the enhanced interrogation techniques at Guantanamo Bay use forms of isolation, for, for instance. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's, it's, it's antithetical to our natural state. And so digital media f- creates sort of a counterfeit illusion of connection. Um, you know, it's so funny because I think it's so, uh, uh, you know, social media, which really should be called anti-social media, because if anything, it drives people deeper into isolation on, under the pretense that they're connected. Hey, I've got a thousand Facebook friends, but meanwhile, I there's nobody that I can call if the, you know, what hits the fan. And so we don't have genuine, you know, Dr. Dunbar was an anthropologist that looked at for people to be socially, emotionally well, we needed a certain number of people in our lives that we could really connect with. You know, when 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 things go wrong, that we can have face-to-face conversations with them. That number is between three to five people, and if we don't have that, we're alone. And and the the pro- they've even done one study that was so fascinating that looked at the importance of eye contact. And if you're having even a face-to-face conversation with someone. And you're not maintaining eye contact for at least 70% of that conversation. It doesn't hit our psychological sweet spot. It doesn't meet our social emotional needs. And now they're finding out that people under 25, even when they're face to face, they're top of the head to the top of the head. They don't make eye contact. And that's really toxic for our uh, emotional well being. So it's, it's, it's affected the way we interact interpersonally, but more importantly, it's, it's, stopped our interacting interpersonally now during covid let's face it you know it's better to zoom with grandma than not zoom with grandma but it shouldn't be our natural way of connecting and we saw that during covid uh screen time doubled and depression rates in some areas tripled so so there's that i recently spoke to the british journalist charles arthur and just in parentheses for listeners that episode will be coming out shortly as well about his book regarding how social media has polarized our politics. As part of our conversation, I asked him if social media was a net positive or net negative innovation, and if we had been better off it had never been conceived. He, he thought that on balance, it was probably net positive, but he certainly wasn't unequivocal. What do you think? Oh, I'm equivocally net negative. Better that the beast had never been created because the Frankenstein monster has broken free from the shackles of its creators in ways that I don't think they anticipated. I, I don't I don't minimize when I analogize social media to a living organism. Because once you bake in certain algorithms, they go off in directions that they go off into an unintended consequence oftentimes. So the 
this polarization, I think, has changed the architecture of people's brains, especially young people who have grown up in this um, black and white world. Because if you think of the DNA of social media, because it lives in, on polarity, it lives on extremification. So if I'm seven, eight years old, 10, 12, 15, 17 years old, and I've grown up in just um, black and white, left, right, you know, Malcolm McLuhan had said the medium is the message. I think now the medium itself is is baking us into inherently pathological thought patterns where we can only process information in polarity buckets. So a lot of the young people that I treat clinically, they're not even able to understand nuance. The gray area of an evolved, critically thinking conversation is beyond them. Um, there is a level of emotional reactivity that's been baked into them where um, they can only put things in two buckets, and those buckets are black and white. And if you think of even even the, the the genesis, you know, Facebook at its birth was hot or not. When Zuckerberg invented it, it was it was binary thinking by design. It wasn't. Oh, it might be pretty. Sometimes it was. It was. It was. And even the definition of the word digital means ones and zeros, no fractions in, in that equation. So I, I'm afraid that it's it's made us into black and white thinkers, which is toxic for politics and and really unhealthy for our mental health. And we're seeing it. We're seeing our political divide greater than I'm 58. It's wider than it's ever been since I've been alive in the United States. And uh, and I think social media has been a big driver of that. In dealing with these issues, what's the role for individuals versus companies or the government? Let's start with individuals. What should they do to protect themselves from these negative effects of social media? Right. So in, in Digital Madness, I do talk about that because I don't think we're necessarily going to be able to change the uh, ocean from being less turbulent. And so how do we become better swimmers in the turbulent ocean? So I think the onus then falls on the individual. And, and as I talk about it in my book, I think part of the antidote to the modern is we could find in the ancient. Um, there's some ancient wisdom that we've forgotten in our modern, reactive, emotional, histrionic, empathy-valued world. We've lost some of the, um, and I'm, you know, I've studied classical philosophy. Um, embedded in classical philosophy is are the skill sets of critical thinking, uh, reason, logic, uh, civil discourse, civic, civic responsibility, ethics. These are all the 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 skills, the tools in our toolbox that I think immunize a person, strengthen our psychological immune system. So we need to really lean into helping our children and ourselves develop the sense of psychological resilience, grit, and the ability to critically think. Because right now, a lot of the people that I work with are just sort of in living on that emotional outer layer of their reactivity skin. Um, and, and that's part of it i think that and that's what feeds the beast that's what feeds more of the toxic content that then they are continuing to swim in so so i use the archetypes of becoming philosopher warriors um that if we can all learn to find our inner philosopher and our inner warrior be whatever cultural orientation you may come from uh, whether it's a spartan warrior or uh, a zulu warrior it doesn't matter we've got to kind of toughen up lean in and use our minds in effect, to come back to something you said earlier, strengthen our psychological immunity so we're better prepared to respond to these targeted attacks on our psychology. As I was preparing for this interview, I checked to see and observed that you don't have a Twitter account. So you're, you know, in effect, you're, you're kind of living up to your 
own advice, but I would just say, personally, having a Twitter account and being active on Twitter is effectively part of my professional life. So what would you say to those who, on one hand, are persuaded by your arguments about some of the negative effects of um, participating on these different platforms, um, but on the other hand, see personal risks to fully withdrawing? Yeah, I'm not advocating for Ludditeism or Amishness necessarily, if that's a word. You know, same argument can be said for with me and my smartphone. I've got, I need to use it professionally. So I'm not saying I'm going to communicate by carrier pigeon uh, moving forward. But I do think we need to be aware of the danger so we don't fall down digital rabbit holes. And, and that's what we've seen happen because we were under aware of some of the pitfalls. And going back to the larger, I think, conversation where you were talking about what can be done on the individual level versus the macro level. I'm a big free speech uh, purist, uh, and and I'm really troubled by the misinformation, disinformation. So I don't remember hearing those words, quite honestly, more than over a few years ago. These are new words that have a very Orwellian thing to me. Now, I get it that there's people are going to put, put out nonsense information, people, but there's always been the National Enquirer. There's always been sort of nutty people out there that put out what I guess today we would call misinformation or disinformation, but we trusted the reader, the viewer, the citizen to be able to make their own informed opinions. I'm a, going back to radio, I'm a big, I was always an insomniac. So I always used to listen to Art Bell and, and Art Bell was, you know, kept me up many nights in college when I would hear, and, and Art Bell would have, you know, Brian Green on one night, the respected quantum physicist talking about string theory. And the next night he'd have some Bigfoot chaser, you know, UFO, whatever. And Art Bell never said, well, person A is legit and person B is disinformation. I'm going to trust you, the listener, to discern that. And, and that's what worries me if we start going down the pathway of censorship, who's the arbiter? Uh, because I don't fully trust the five, our five titans of the tech oligarchs to be the gatekeepers because they haven't proven to be good stewards of their responsibilities so far. I do think there may be a role for government in terms of something like the FCC used to be back for the days of broadcast uh, television. You know, having some sort of regulatory oversight may be helpful, maybe repealing Section 230s because they are indeed publishers and not just a message board randomly posting people's things. But at the end of the day, it's the individual's uh, responsibility to fortify themselves to be able to, to swim through the morass. Throughout our conversation, you anticipated my next and penultimate question about the role of the state. You mentioned some possible reforms that governments around the world might pursue. What about the idea of antitrust? Do you think the time has come to possibly break some of these organizations up? Yeah, beyond beyond. So, you know, it's the the Ma Bell, Baby Bell um, paradigm needs to be copied because they have become too monolithic and too all powerful. And in my book, you know, I've written at length about how they've abused, you know, they took the Rockefeller standard oil playbook and, and, and on steroids. You know, the problem when JD Rockefeller was the richest man in the world, he controlled one commodity, oil. These folks control everything in terms of the control information. So they're the gatekeepers of what we think, what we feel, how we vote, how we emote, um, how we live our lives. And so to have such a small handful of people have so much power is extremely troubling. So I think. And there, I know that there's been a movement now that uh, President Biden's uh, uh, secretary is 
one of uh, she's an antitrust expert and she's looking at uh, defanging the beast through antitrust legislation. So I think that's a, a necessary thing because they have grown too big, too monolithic, and too all-consuming in our lives to our detriment. The final question, Nicholas, do you think your books are making a difference in this regard? There, there does seem to be a changing perspective in, in the general public and even among policymakers. What's your sense? Yeah, I, I will say that I definitely saw a change, a shift in culture and in clinical perception. Um, when Glow Kids first came out, I was a Paul Revere voice in the wilderness, and I wrote an op-ed called Digital Heroin for the New York paper, and, and I had quite a few national media, you know, Good Morning America saying, really, is this like heroin? And I said, well, not as lethal in that sense, but as habit-forming. And now we've, we've accepted it, that this is, and so I've seen movement in accepting some of the harms that might be happening. I've, I've had thousands of families reach out saying thank you because we were seeing our children getting affected and, and no clinician understood that this was a real thing. And now it's a real diagnosis and accepted by, uh, by the World Health Organization. So I think similarly, in terms of uh, raising awareness, I do see a grassroots awakening where people are realizing that we've been manipulated. And uh, I'm a, a big fan of Neil Postman, the the media theorist professor from NYU who wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death back in 1985 and who warned of the new visual medium becoming the soma, uh, the distracting, sedating soma that would keep us um, sort of navel-gazing while Rome was burning. I'm mixing many metaphors here, but, but, but essentially that's what happens, right? If we're all numb and sedated and are gaming or on social media, we're not awake uh, you know, we're not truly awake to the sociopolitical environments or to what's happening geopolitically. And so I do think that people are beginning to awaken to the fact that we have to stop getting lost on digital rabbit holes and really look around and see what, what's really happening in the world. And there's a lot of dramatic shifts happening in the world that we need to be aware of right now. The book is Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. Dr. Nicholas Carderis, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.